From the studios of KPCW in Park City, it's This Green Earth, a weekly talk show about the environment and our relationships with it. I'm Chris Cherniak. And I'm Nell Larson. Well, last week, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service decided to list the iconic white bark pine as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. The white bark pine is considered a keystone species in the high country across the American West. That's right. We'll speak with Dr. Elizabeth Panzing, forest and restoration scientist with the nonprofit American Forests, about white bark pine, its history and importance to Western forests why it's threatened, and what is being done to protect and preserve it. That's in the first part of the show. Then in the second part of the show, we're going to uh, replay an interview we recorded back in November uh, with environmental and science journalist Michelle Niehaus. Uh, she's going to be talking about her most recent book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an age of extinction. The book provides insights on the future of the protection of all species. Hey, including our own, I guess. <laughs> we That's hope it. so. Yeah, okay. That's in the second part of the show. Environmental awareness and education. That's what This Green Earth is all about. Stay with us. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now for the first part of the show today is Dr. Elizabeth Panzing. She is a forest and restoration scientist with the nonprofit American Forests. And uh, today she's here specifically to talk with us about the white bark pine and its recent listing on the endangered uh, species list. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Well, let's start with a profile of the white bark pine. What do they look like and, and how can we identify them? Where might we see them? All, all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness. Okay, so I have to start off by saying that white bark pine forests are just one of the most magical places on earth. Um, white bark pine is not your stereotypical Christmas tree. It <laughs> tends to grow with this really broad sweeping canopy that reaches out towards the sky and it grows in really harsh environments. So you tend to find it in these upper subalpine and treeline environments on harsh exposed ridge lines and in locations where other tree species really tend to not be able to grow. So they're very hardy and very tolerant of windy and droughty conditions. Um, and what makes them fairly unique is a couple of things they've got. So their needles come in bundles of five, so you can notice that. And then one of the really neat things is they have these deep purple cones where the cone scales tend to stay closed. They don't open and create gaps like most other conifers. Mm. Um, they're distributed across seven U.S. states and two Canadian provinces and cover about 80,000 um, acre, or excuse me, 80 million acres across their range. Does that include Utah? It do actually does not include Utah. Oh. So um, Utah has other closely related species like Rocky Mountain bristlecone pine um, and limber pine. Oh. Actually, I don't think you guys do have bristlecone. So limber okay. pine, um, but no white bark. The closest would probably be in the Wind River Range in Wyoming or a couple of isolated pockets in Nevada. Looking at the map sort of of the distribution, it looks like we can see it in those states to the north and the west of us, but not right where we are. Um, and, and looking at an image like it has... Um, it has that look of these other really long-lived species that you mentioned, like the bristlecone. What kind of lifespan does it have? 
uh, whitebark pine can grow in excess of a thousand years. So it's oh. not quite as long lived as Rocky or the Great Basin bristle cone, but definitely is a slow growing and long lived species. So this this species is now seeing a decline. And as we mentioned in the intro, it's being listed. What are some of the challenges it's facing? What's causing this decline in the species? Yeah, so the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has attributed four different causes to whitebark pines decline. Um, the most existential of which is an introduced fungal pathogen that causes a disease called white pine blisterus. So this pathogen was actually introduced to Western North America in the early 1900s and has spread throughout a lot of five needle white pines since. Um, and it really is the main component that is causing white bark pines decline. Um, in addition to white pine blister rust, it's also declining because of outbreaks of the native mountain pine beetle, um, changing fire regimes and also climate change. And I noticed that you you specified that it's a native mountain pine beetle. Um, are we seeing an increase in in that due to the you know due to climate change and those kinds of things? Yeah, there are some increases in uh, mountain pine beetle outbreaks as a result of climate change. So that is changing a bit. But again, that that existential threat really is the white pine blister rust. And does that Blisterous only affect white pine, uh, white bark pine, or or is, or is it, uh, you know, affecting other uh, plants and trees around it? Yeah. So it, um, there's a couple different ways to answer that question. So white bark pine is not the only conifer species that it impacts. It impacts all other five needle white pines. Oh. So that includes western white pine, limber pine bristle cone pine, eastern white pine, and a few other uh, pine species that are distributed widely across the western United States and the eastern United States. So there are declines that are occurring in other species as well. Mm. Um, it also has what we call a complex life cycle. So it actually has five different spores and requires an alternate host in order to successfully complete its life cycle. So it doesn't just stay in the pine species, it jumps in between pines and usually a plant species in the gooseberry or currant family. So it has this kind of broad reaching impact across um, multiple plant types and also multiple types of conifers across the West. You say that the white bark pine is a, a keystone species. Explain what that, what keystone species is and, and give us an example of how it expresses itself. Yeah, so white bark pine is considered a keystone species basically because it acts as a linchpin in these systems. So it, it really contributes more to biodiversity than its overall numbers would suggest. So even when it's locally rare, it has an outsized impact on how the community is structured and the types of species that can persist in that ecosystem. So what that means practically with whitebark pine is that it prov provides food, shelter, perching and nesting sites, burrows and food for species at high elevations where that can be rare. And then it's large and nutritious seeds are really kind of 
the main meat and potatoes of that important relationship with other species. So white bark pine seeds are actually fairly large. If you think about pine nuts that you might get in your salad, they look and actually taste a lot like those. So they're high in fat content and really important to a variety of species that might, you might find in these high elevation ecosystems. So that includes um, fox, squirrels, and grizzly bears. You know, when you said you were going to list a few species, I automatically assumed you were going to talk about birds. So yeah. it's always really interesting to hear some of our, our ground-dwelling species are um, depending on these as well. Um, what are, are bird species also tied to this tree? Bird species are also very closely tied to this tree. Um, and I'll talk a little bit, if that's okay, about one in particular, which mm -hmm. is called the Clark's Nutcracker. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this small jay-like bird uh, is an obligate mutualist, or the white bark pine is an obligate mutualist. So it means that it cannot generally survive without this bird. And the reason why kind of comes back to those cones that I talked about earlier. So the cones, those scales stay sealed. And that means that the, the seeds are locked inside of that those cones. And so that's where the Clark's not nutcracker comes in. They have this really long, sharp beak that makes accessing those cones and the seeds inside fairly easy. I still say fairly because it's not quite easy, but, and the nutcrackers will actually harvest the seeds out of those cones. They store it in a specialized pouch that they have underneath their tongue, and wow. they'll distribute those seeds across the landscape, and they can store them um, in small caches under the ground, they can store them in trees, they can store them all across the landscape. And this serves two purposes. One for the nutcracker, which is it provides a food source. And the second is that any of the seeds that the nutcrackers forget to go back and get actually contribute to the regeneration of white bark pine. And that's the primary mechanism of regeneration for the species. I, I think I read that the um, Clark's nutcracker is the only way that sort of this species can move and shift its location on the landscape. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's definitely the primary way. And it's the, okay. it is one of the ways that white bark pine is so resilient in the face of disturbance is because nutcrackers can transport those seeds up to 20 miles. So it's a very great long distance mechanisms and rodents and other species might contribute to some more localized seed dispersal, but the nutcrackers are really the main primary seed disperser and the one that's responsible for dispersing it to such great distances. But, but again, but on the other hand, the tree seems to prefer certain conditions, like you say, maybe dry, arid, windy, cold, what um, last week or so, we were, or two weeks ago, we were interviewing Jared Farmer on his book Elder Flora about really old trees. Uh, like you said, <laughs> Dr. Panzing, these are trees like bristlecone pines that are two, three thousand years old. Um, but he mentioned a, a phenomenon called, uh, that, that involved trees that, that seem to live long, live in very stressful conditions, uh, dry conditions, windy, cold uh conditions that that you wouldn't think would promote long lived settings but yet this tree again just to go circle back this tree seems to prefer a, a certain condition it's not going to just grow near uh you know a southern exposed stream bed or something like that right 
Yeah, so part of that goes back to the fact that they are incredibly tolerant and hardy of these harsh conditions, yeah. but also there's a competitive factor there. Mm. So you can find them in areas that are more productive and more um, what we would think of as being welcoming to just growth in general, but they tend to not do as well when they're surrounded by other species. So they tend to get outcompeted and will eventually kind of decline in their overall abundance in those locations. So it's not that they're not found in other spaces. It's just that's where you tend to see them being um, probably most iconic and most uh, most common is in these areas where it is harsh and other tree species can't thrive because you've removed that competitive component. Interesting. Okay. So, so as we kind of talk a little bit more about, um, the challenges that this species is facing, um, particularly the blister rust, like how, I'm curious, how fast is this happening? Um, and how broad is the impact on the white bark pine at this point? Uh, so white pine blister rust has been documented virtually throughout white bark pines range. So across that 80 million or so acres, white pine blister rust is present. Um, you know, in terms of how quickly it happens, it really, it depends upon the location. It depends upon the susceptibility of individual trees. It depends upon ages. Um, it can take a couple years to more than a decade for white bark, white pine blister rust to kill an individual tree. And there are a lot of factors that go into play with that. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Panzing. She's the senior manager and uh, forest and restoration scientist at the nonprofit American Forest. We're talking about the white bark pine and the fact that the US uh, Fish and Wildlife Service decided to list the white bark pine as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, it's threatened. What does that mean for the tree? So the threatened designation means that it, without intervention, it is likely to become endangered in the near term. So uh, it is at risk of becoming an endangered species and at risk of um, extinction range-wide. What that means we're hoping is that it renews energy and effort into restoration activities that have been going on across white bark pines range for the last couple of decades. So increasing pace and scale of these restoration activities that really wonderful folks have been doing for a long time is gonna be a really key component of moving this process forward towards recovery and towards restoration. What does restoration of such a slow growing, long lived uh, species look like? It's a great question. Mm. Uh, the, the main piece uh, that we tend to think about with white bark pine restoration is really increasing the proportion of resistant individuals across the landscape. And so when I say resistant individuals, what I mean is that there are a there's a proportion of white bark pine across the landscape that have natural resistance to white pine blister rust. And so what our wonderful partners, land managers are doing across its range is they're going out and finding these individuals that look like they're resistant. 
So you can think about going out into a location where more than 90% of the trees on the landscape have been killed by this disease and finding one or two individuals that are still really healthy and thriving in that, really that deathscape in that ghost forest. And what they'll do is they'll collect cones from those individuals and they bring the cones back to the nursery, grow the seeds into seedlings, and then they expose them to really high loads of the spores that cause white pine blister rust. And then they'll monitor them for long periods of time. It's a couple years. The ones that survive and do really well show indication of being resistant. And so we know that those trees that they, the seeds came from um, have some level of genetic resistance to the disease. And so those individuals are protected and we can grow additional seedlings from their cones and plant those in landscapes that have been impacted by white pine blister rust. And so by doing that, we're increasing that resistance on the landscape and we're contributing to the next generation of white bark pine in that location. It's so fascinating to hear how these processes are working. And um, it sounds like probably a relatively slow one, but something that that's showing a lot of promise. Is that right? Yes, definitely. So, you know, this has been ongoing for the last couple of decades, we have some really great successes that we can document across the landscape of where this is working effectively. Um, but you're correct that it is very slow because white bark pine is such a slow growing species. Um, restoration of this species is not gonna be a slow, or it's not gonna be a fast process. Um, folks who are engaged in white bark pine restoration are well aware of the fact that this could take, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, and we might not actually see restored white bark pine ecosystems for, um, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So human generations, but it is possible. We have the tools, we have the ability, and we just need to, to scale that up in order to accomplish it across a broader landscape. Well, it's encouraging. So what is this, what does this all mean for the Clark's nutcracker? Like can the Clark's nutcracker right. depend on other species until we see, you know, maybe a little bit of a rebound of the white bark pine? Um, do we expect that they'll stay in the same places even if the white bark pine goes away there? Clark's nutcrackers are very flexible in their food sources mm. and uh, they respond very nicely to where cones are being produced at any given year. Okay. So we do expect that they will, they don't require white bark pine in order to survive or thrive. Uh, they use a lot of other pine species for, um, and a lot of other conifers more broadly for food and they will move. So we do expect that as this continues to decline, and this has been documented fairly well, that there are fewer nutcrackers that are visiting these white bark pine stands. Um, but as they recover, we expect that they will come back into those stands as they start producing cones. And that's actually one of the main pieces of um, American Forest has partnered with the White Bark Pine Ecosystem Foundation to develop a national white bark pine restoration plan. Hmm. And that's actually a key component of it. We're partnering with the nutcrackers, right? So we do some of the restoration and then set that stage so that the nutcrackers can come back in and finish that restoration job for us. Wow. Um, is there any commercial value of white bark pines from white bark pine 
And and the fact that it's now listed as a threatened species as that commercial use logging or whatever um, being uh, impacted. It's not a very good commercial species, and because it tends to grow in really hard to access remote locations, um, it has not tended to be a good target for uh, timber harvest. Okay. So again, like you say, this is all about blister rust, and it's uh, and the effects of that on the tree and threatening the the uh, existence, the future of this tree, and the control of that. Yeah, correct. And then we've got the mountain pine beetle fire and climate change in there. Blister <laughs> oh, yeah. really is an existential threat. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The whole host, the, the whole suite. The of... <laughs> usual suspects. I just picture a you know police lineup now these days of uh, of all the suspects of all of our different uh, parts of our ecosystem. Um, so in the last couple minutes or so, what can people do here? Unfortunately, like you say, we can't see it. Well, unless we go to the Wind River Range. That's right. Or over to Nevada. Over to Nevada. Okay. Uh, but... Uh, otherwise, um, website that we can visit, our listeners can visit to see this tree and learn more about it? Yeah, so American Forest has partnered with the Whitebark Pine Ecosystem Foundation, Ricketts Conservation, and uh, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology to try to help raise awareness about this, uh, the tree and the plight that it's facing. So if listeners want to go to save the whitebarkpine.org you can learn more about the species learn what you can do to help um and we'd be really grateful for all of the eyes and ears that can be on this it's going to take a village to get this work done but it can be done and um we're just grateful for all of the support and attention that can be paid to this iconic western species well, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It was fascinating to learn about the white bark pine and the potential for, for saving it. Um, we appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. That was Dr. Elizabeth Panzing, the forest and restoration scientist with the nonprofit American Forest, helping us learn about white bark pine. Yeah. And, and the uh, Clark's Nutcracker. I know. It's so fascinating. I've, I've, I thought I've heard of every bird. No. <laughs> Once again, I haven't. Clark's not crowd. All right. So let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to be replaying an interview we had uh, a few months ago uh, about the, uh, with the author of the book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. It's this green earth. We'll be right back. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And joining us now uh, on the phone for the second part of the show is Michelle Nyehaus. She's the author of Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us this morning on this green earth. Hi, good morning. Great to be here. Well, um, it's a fascinating book, and we're really excited to talk to you about it. Um, you know, in the book, you you talk about the modern conservation movement and and the people that built it and the history of it. When when did this start? Like, how do you define the conservation movement and when that um, started? Yeah, great question, and one that I spent a lot of time wrestling with in the course <laughs> of writing the book. Um, so I I wanted to make sure I was distinguishing um, the movement that I was writing about from the kinds of conservation work that people have done, you know, since since the beginning of human history. Uh, people have always, I think, um, paid some attention to the species that they depended on for survival and how those species were doing. But 
but really that the modern conservation movement started in the late 19th century in Europe and North America when people realized kind of belatedly that human activities could drive species globally extinct. Um, people had not really considered that humans could be as destructive as that. They sort of thought species are creations of God and they're going to endure forever no matter what mm. we do. And mm -hmm. um, and people woke up to the idea that, wow, extinction is possible and it, it could be our fault and, and we need to uh, do something to prevent it. The famous story of the, the passenger pigeon, I think that we all mm. learned probably at an early age, it hit that home, it seemed like maybe there was a, a thought that um, these these species as resources were sort of inexhaustible, like mm -hmm. like people couldn't possibly, you know, uh, make this these vast numbers of species extinct. Was that the thought? Yeah, and, and in a way you can understand it. I mean, because yeah. people were you know, in, no matter where they lived, but but especially in North America. Uh, though, of course, people had been inhabiting North America for a long time, but they hadn't been in very great numbers. And, and there were just huge numbers of not only passenger pigeons, but, you know, large charismatic animals like the bison. And there are all these stories about how, you know, while passenger pigeons, you know, darkened the sun, right. uh, the bison, herds of bison darkened the land. And, you know, it's yeah. easy for people to say, well, we're just puny humans, you know, what damage could we possibly do? And the answer was, well, a lot, especially when there's lots of humans and there's lots of, in the case of the bison, there's a big profit motive. Um, and, you know, within the course of a few decades, the bison had gone from darkening the land to just a few dozen animals left outside, um, left, you know, free roaming on the prairie. Right. I'm, I'm also thinking about those uh, iconic images of in the late 1800s when women walked around with hats literally made mm -hmm. of birds, right? <laughs> I was like, wow, yeah. like, what's, the, what's a few Carolina parakeets between, you know, friends and, and <laughs> egrets and feathers and stuff? And, but you, like you say, it, it would slowly eat away, literally eat away at not only the, the populations themselves, but the ecosystems too, as as population, I'll, I'll focus on say North America, as populations grew here in the continental U.S., we start to fill in their habitat, their wetland systems, we level their far their forests, their lands, and exactly. so not only are we are we killing them directly, we're killing them indirectly by destroying their habitat. Exactly, and I mean, really, the work of the conservation movement from the start has been to connect people with the consequences of their consumer decisions because as you know as these trade when you when you are um you know living locally and and hunting for your food you can see the consequences of of what you're what you're consuming but when you're buying hats that are made on the other side of the continent or on the other side of the ocean you don't necessarily see that oh no you know in order to put this beautiful egret feather on my hat um a bunch of egret chicks were abandoned and as you say you know their habitat was destroyed and so the conservation movement worked very hard to make those connections and and you know while it has failed in many cases it has also had great successes and i think the movement against um feathered hats right. was extremely successful in that right. it ended in passing the migratory bird treaty act which is something that we still 
um, depend on to protect our songbird populations yeah. and our, our wetland bird populations. And, and there are many, many species that we almost certainly would not have today were it not for the people, many of them women who stood up and said, hey, have you thought about where that hat comes from? Mm -hmm. <laughs> have you thought about what's really happening in this faraway place that you know, may seem like it has nothing to do with your life, but actually has a lot to do with um, the ecosystems that support these birds and support human beings. One one of the things that I think is so fascinating that your your book really highlights or just like brings to light is how much the conservation movement has changed over the years. And um, you share the story of the taxidermist and the bison. <laughs> and it's like, it's almost comical if it weren't tragic, but mm -hmm. but um, would you kind of share what the conservation or that the those early ideas of conservation versus how that's shifted to now? Yeah, um, and it really is interesting to look back um, over the the decades and see how our thinking has changed, and and in a way, it's really encouraging. Progress can be made. <laughs> um, you know, when people when the conservation movement started, like I said, people were just reacting really in shock to the idea that these very abundant animals that they lived alongside could could be driven extinct by human activities. And so it was a very, um, I mean, it was very difficult work they were doing, but in a way it was a simple mission. They were trying to get people to stop shooting so many animals. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, you mentioned the taxidermists and the bison, ironically, in, in, in some cases, the people were, uh, uh, were also participating in this destruction in the sense that they were hunters themselves, often wealthy sport hunters who wanted to see their sport continue. You know, they didn't want people to stop shooting animals entirely, especially in the case of the bison. They wanted to preserve their ability um, to hunt on the prairie and and protect these species that I think they genuinely loved and admired. So, but you know, that was kind of a simplistic way of thinking about conserving species because of course species live in habitats and they depend on other species so if you really want to protect a species um, a thriving population of a species you have to protect its relationships um, you can't just you know keep it safe from from people shooting it so um, as the science of ecology grew up the conservation movement grew up along with it and I think you know now we have learned so much more about what species need to survive alongside of us and um, you know what other species they need in order to survive, what kind of habitats they need. And I think that is a real accomplishment of the conservation movement. What we are now learning is that humans are also part of that, those ecosystems that we need to play a role in them. We need to not only you know wall species off from ourselves, but we need to get better at living sustainably alongside of them. So I think rebuilding a healthier, more sustainable relationship when it's possible between species and our own species is really the essential work, the essential challenge of the conservation movement going forward. You also address that there has historically um, and continues to be this darker side of conservation um, with, you know, racism and colonialism and, um, and I would I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about like how wh why that came to be such like this this piece of the conservation movement in the early years and and how you know is that changing? 
Yeah, and that was something that was very was very difficult to grapple with in the course of the book, but I found it very rewarding because I've been a I've been an environmental journalist for a long time. I have known that, you know, the conservation movement had a dark history. Um, I've acknowledged it in my writing many different ways, but I've never really looked at, okay, why is this happening? And and what can we, you know, why is there this systemic history in, in a conservation movement, in this movement that's really about, you know, protecting life, it's really a compassionate movement. Um, yeah. and, and what can we do about that history? So, so, I mean, what I, what I learned is that, you know, this is a movement that started in Europe and North America in, in wealthy circles of people who, you know, had the time and, and the social capital to to say things that were rather controversial at the time. And um, they were able to accomplish a lot, but they also infused the movement with their worldview, which tended to be pretty uh, elitist, um, in some cases, racist and sexist, certainly classist. And, and I think we still see traces of that attitude today in the sense that the conservation movement has has for a long time defaulted to top-down solutions. Like the answer is, let's establish a park, let's mm. um, pass a law. And of course, I mean, I'm not going to say that those things aren't necessary. Like I said, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act saved a whole bunch of birds. But the missing piece is working with people to live alongside other species. Um, the grassroots work that leads to a society um, developing what Aldo Leopold called a conservation ethic, um, because of course laws help, but if people themselves don't support the laws, if they're constantly trying to violate them, uh, they're not very effective. So that to me is, there's of course, you know, a, a huge moral cost to the, the racism and sexism that we see expressed by individuals and in some cases by groups within the conservation movement. But there's also this very practical cost um, that's holding the movement back. The legacy of that, I think, is holding the movement back from what it could be. Um, it could be a much broader um, movement that's really helping society become better citizens of its own ecosystems. Mm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with author and science journalist Michelle Nyehaus uh, about her most recent book, Beloved Beasts, Fighting for Life in an Age of Extinction. Yeah, Michelle, the names that come up are the usual, I'll say the usual suspects, <laughs> like, like Teddy Roosevelt and, and John Muir, Gifford Pinchot, Aldo Leopold, you mentioned uh all conservationists and all had a big part in helping to, at a minimum, bring awareness and education uh, and the importance of, of preserving, uh, conserving ecosystems, wildlife, etc. Who would you say today, either individuals or institutions, organizations that are playing major roles in helping to continue to foster this mindset? Uh, and, and are they and do they have to do their work a little differently these days? Mm, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really enjoyed, um, as you know, some of the names you mentioned, these are very complex characters, um, and, you know, you know, complex in ways that sometimes aren't acknowledged. You know, Teddy Roosevelt was undeniably, um, did things that protected really important places and species we still value. Mm -hmm. He also 
you know, was supportive of eugenics and mm -hmm. he had a lot of very elitist um, exclusionary attitudes about people of other races and other national origins. So I think it's important to see these people in their full complexity and learn what we can from them, both things that we want to take from them and the things that we want to do very differently today sure. so i think happily um you know there there of course are still uh as i said that that legacy of you know very wealthy elitist leaders you know there there that still exists in conservation um but the the trend that I see that really gives me hope is that there is a rising, um, ri there's the rising power of the grassroots. And by that, I mean, uh, there's a really vibrant movement of indigenous and rural communities around the world that are, uh, that are talking on a much larger platform than they once did about the value of indigenous-led conservation efforts, community-led conservation efforts that are making, you know, a huge difference in terms of protecting other species and really deserve this, the support of these more, quote-unquote, traditional conservation movements that are, you know, the, the descendants of Teddy Roosevelt and some of the conservation leaders from the last century. And I think there's a wide recognition within those more those conservation groups whose names we all recognize, the Sierra Club, Audubon Society, and so forth, there's a recognition among the people who work within those organizations that they do one of their really important and, and you know, neglected roles is to support people of all walks of life who are doing conservation on the ground, um, who are saving species every day just by the way they go about their daily lives. And that to me is a really hopeful trend. I don't think it's happening fast enough, mm. but it is happening. And that that's very encouraging to me. Sort of on, I don't know, maybe it's the, the opposite end of the spectrum of sort of everyday projects or everyday support of these species. There have been some like truly extraordinary efforts made to save individual species um, like the whooping crane or the black rhino or, and, and I'm wondering mm -hmm. if you would just maybe choose one of these that resonated with you and, and share that story with us. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, I think these are, these are stories that get maybe an outsized amount of attention because they're so dramatic and they're, yeah. you know, they involve individual people who dedicate decades to, to um, protecting individual, often very charismatic species. But I am not denying the power of those stories because I got to spend some time with um, people at the San Diego Zoo who are working on advanced reproductive technologies to protect to you know, rescue really genetically rescue a subspecies um, of rhino that is incredibly endangered. There are only I think now two left mm -hmm. alive, and they are trying to um, you know do some things with with um, other subspecies to perhaps um, produce uh, rhinos rhinos of this very endangered subspecies um, through surrogate. Uh, reproduction. So I was visiting this lab and, and I was thinking about all these ethical questions, you know, is this the right thing to do? Why are we doing this? Is this where we should be putting our efforts? And I, I walked up to the fence where the rhinos and their their moms and dads are and, and a 
baby rhino, which is of course a huge animal, came up to me and kind of nuzzled against me and my heart just melted, you know. <laughs> oh, a baby rhino. <laughs> so I will never say that those things should not be done. Um, they're very powerful educationally. And I think those technologies that are being developed, you know, are, it's good for us to have them available because we will continue to have these emergencies of, you know, just grievously endangered species that we want to keep with us. Um, and we may need to go to these great expensive lengths, but I do think they get overemphasized in the news because what we really need to be doing yeah. is, is protecting species while they're still common, you know, while they're still healthy in their habitats, we need to be doing things to, to um, help them stay that way because that is not only the most effective means of conservation, it's also the cheapest. Um, it's very unlikely that we will, we will ever have, we may be able to save a few um, members of that subspecies of rhino, but it's very unlikely that we're ever going to have a healthy population again. It's, it's um, just a long shot scientifically and financially and practically. Um, so I don't want, I, I, again, want those efforts to continue, but I don't want them to be treated as a cure-all or a magic bullet or, or seen as such. Uh, we have, we know how to protect habitats um, and there's a lot of things we could do that we're just not doing. Right. The whole point is to, is to avoid getting to this point in the first yeah. place where there are, where there are two left or whatever. I'm, I'm curious, yeah. you mentioned so much about the, you know, like there's so much attention that goes to these like charismatic, mm -hmm. super charismatic species. Um, you know, how do people connect or engage with those that aren't so um, charismatic, like like insects or um, yeah. some of these smaller mammals that make less of a splash? <laughs> well, I think um, it's, you know, I, I, I understand why conservation organizations often have, you know, a flagship species that that people gravitate to. And, and perhaps we are hardwired. Um, in some way to feel closer to our fellow mammals than we do to say arthropods. Um, but I think it, it, for those who take the time to look more deeply, there is, you know, a huge amount of wonder and beauty to be found in smaller, less charismatic species. And I think as people become more ecologically literate, as they understand, you know, what's the role of these perhaps, you know, kind of scary or boring looking or or unpleasant looking um, creatures, what's their role in, in the ecosystems that we depend on too? I think that sense of wonder only increases because, you know, some of them are just, are so incredibly important to us in ways we are just beginning to understand. Uh, so I think that it's okay for us to have favorites. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's perhaps, un, you know, that's perhaps inevitable. Um, right. And and perhaps, you know, the, the fuzzy, beautiful creatures are, are an entry point for people. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there is beauty to be found uh, throughout the, you know, throughout the, the natural world and, and that we, I do see people embracing that more and more. And to me, that's a, and I think that's because people are understanding the importance of these relationships among species I, as well as the importance of species themselves. I, I, yeah. I agree. I was just going to yeah. say that. I think uh, we're doing a better job at understanding, like you say, the relationships or interconnectedness mm -hmm. between not just species, but uh, a species and their habitat. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, quite honestly, no milkweed, no monarch. And as you know, mm -hmm. we, can, we can spend all day, all you know, uh, 52 weeks a year trying to save the monarch. But if we don't 
understand that we have to save the milkweed too there will be no monarch so that interconnected yeah. understanding and appreciating the interconnectedness between one species to another or a species and its habitat um is is uh i don't know improving or uh become, be, becoming better understood and appreciated yeah, I think so. And and to me, that is that is one of several really hopeful trends in conservation. And, you know, conservation work is is, you know, sometimes can feel like it's just saturated with tragedy because there are so many losses. But I think the historical perspective, um, there's a lot of hope to be found in the historical perspective because you can see what we've learned. You can see what people of all different walks of life have have managed to accomplish over the, the past decades and and you recognize there's still so many opportunities uh for humans to do right by other species all right i'll i'll give you that <laughs> I'll, I, I'll be <laughs> i'm I, I will i will also say i'm less hopeful when it comes to a lot of humans uh in trying <laughs> to do the right thing um that's for sure there are eight billion of us now remember <laughs> So that's for uh, sure. It's an ongoing. But hey, Go ahead. I do think that uh, I do think that the conservation movement, uh, speaking of that, tends to jump to that conclusion a little more quickly than mm. they need to. Um, and I mean, I give you that like every time I'm in a traffic jam, I just despair yes. <laughs> about myself and my fellow humans. I think, ah, oh, what a plague we are. But um, <laughs> but, you know, and so I'm certainly not denying that we cause we've caused just unbelievable destruction but i think you know we've been informed by this idea of the tragedy of the commons yeah. um you know that was mm -hmm. that was articulated by a ecologist in the 1960s who said you know humans just whenever they're given free reign over a resource they're just going to use it up until it's gone um, we're just not capable of managing ourselves and the nobel prize winning economist eleanor ostrom who's far less well known than the idea of the tragedy of the commons, you know, spent her career finding out that there's all kinds of examples of communities that have done the opposite, you know, that have figured out how to live, you know, have developed their own rules and figured out how to live uh, sustainably with the resources they have access to. And, and so I think, yes, right. yeah. <laughs> yes, and <Right>. um, <laughs> there are there are models that we can look to and say, all right this seems impossible so much damage has been done but look at what this community has accomplished right. can we learn from that okay well I, I love that perspective and it is the perfect place for us to wrap up because we do have to do that um michelle nyehouse author of beloved beasts fighting for life in an age of extinction thanks so much for joining us tell us where we can find your book you can find it wherever books are sold. Um, <laughs> it is out in paperback and uh, you know, available for all the holiday gifts you may need to buy. Perfect timing. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks again thank for joining you. us. Thank you, Michelle. The, thank you so much for having me. All right. Welcome back to This Green Earth. I'm Nell Larson. And I'm Chris Cherniak. And we have a couple minutes before right. we have to wrap up. And, and uh, Chris has some news he'd like to share. Well, uh, last week, nations agreed to protect a third of the planet for nature by 2030 in a landmark deal aimed at safeguarding biodiversity. 
Uh, there will also be targets for protecting vital ecosystems such as rainforests and wetlands and the rights of indigenous people. This is all based on an agreement at the COP15 uh, Conference of the Parties. Uh, UN Conference of the Parties, number 15, Biodiversity Summit, not climate-related summit, but Biodiversity Summit that was held in Montreal, Canada, uh, last couple weeks. And that's, that's great news. It's been hailed as, uh, uh, as the UN Secretary General uh, Antonio Guterres says, we are finally starting to forge a peace pact with nature. The main points include maintaining, enhancing, and restoring ecosystems, including halting species extinction and maintaining genetic diversity. White bark pine, hello, yeah, maybe. You know, that's that's <laughs> right. kind of a great example Falls of that. Falls into this category. Right, a sustainable use of biodiversity, essentially assuring that species and habitats can provide the services they provide for humanity, such as food and clean water, thank you, nature, uh, ensuring that the benefits of resources from nature, like medicines that come from plants, are shared fairly and equally and that indigenous people's rights are protected, and paying for and putting resources into biodiversity, ensuring that money and conservation efforts get to where they are needed. So you can learn more about this by going to the UN COP15. Uh, Search on that, and you'll find more uh, details about this agreement among the UN nations for, to protect uh, biodiversity. A step in the right direction. Yay. A nice way to finish the year. That's right. Although we still got a couple weeks. And we have guests for those couple of weeks. We won't get into them, but <laughs> stay tuned. That's right. Uh, well, I think we should wrap up the show. Yes, you can always uh, email us your thoughts, comments, and ideas for topics and stories you'd like us to cover at all one word, this green earth at kpcw.org. And please reach out because we love to hear from you about the things you want to learn about yeah. and the things you want us to cover, whether that's local or global. And, and speaking of future shows, um, uh, and local, hopefully we're trying to get Nate Brown. He's our local bird expert on next week because the Christmas... Uh, we just had the Christmas Audubon bird count. Christmas count was this On a Sunday. frigid morning. <laughs> uh, uh, that that people assembled at your place, Swanner. Yes, at Swanner. And went out and looked for birds. Yeah. And so hopefully we'll have uh, Nate Brown join us perhaps next week. He'll give us the recap. talk about the results of that. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, to wrap up, the interviews from today's show will be posted on the KPCW website later today. Um, and you can also find them wherever you find your podcasts. Thanks again for joining us. And remember, this is KPCW 91.7 FM Park City.